Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. This is The Athletic Baseball Show on The Athletic Podcast Network. Welcome to Starkville. This is a show that we're very proud of with Jason Stark. But Jason Stark is not here. But we're still supported by the Athletic Baseball Show family. So we're all here together. And Jason, what is he doing? He's being a Hall of Famer. I don't blame him. I, if I was a Hall of Famer, I'd be a Hall of Famer all the time. So I don't, I, you know, this time at least he didn't hit. What did, we, what did he hit? A bear or a deer last time? That was that was not good. Uh, but this time he seemed, he made it safe and sound. The bears were happy and the deers and, uh, and Jason is just enjoying Cooperstown. His favorite time of the year, favorite town on the planet next to Starkville, of course. Uh, But this year, this, uh, this episode is Jason free. So we're going to have to figure out what do we do in honor of Jason Stark at this hall of fame time. And at the same time, make sure Starkville keeps running. Right. So we have our mayor, Tim McMaster holding it down. Uh, I'll have to play deputy mayor and host at the same time today. That's okay. Uh, and it's very fitting that this week is on the, the tail end of the Hall of Fame inductions. And and what a time it was to just see uh, the storybook of this season because uh, this induction season because of Fred McGriff and Scott Rowland getting into the hall. And you almost have these two stories where Fred McGriff ha- had played the patient game. In some ways, it was befitting of how he was as a player, patient, steady, consistent. And he waited and waited and waited until those votes finally came in. And and Fred McGriff, a.k.a. the crime dog, was in as a Hall of Famer. And I did play a little bit against Fred McGriff and, you know, being the Tampa native, I Tampa, not myself, but knowing his Florida roots. I know a lot of guys like Ozzie Timmons and Davey Martinez and Darnell Coles. Fred McGriff was a, a legend. And already before he even uh, got to to this level, this Hall of Fame level. And the thing that's fascinating, when I kind of look at his numbers, and this is always a debate, right, of Hall of Famers, I look at the fact that between 1988 and 1994, he had over 30 home runs a season. Now, it doesn't sound like a lot for today's game, or I wouldn't say today, but maybe the recent history, but it's a lot to be that consistent at the time. And in those days... He was always in the top five. You know, he finished, he'd lead the league. He'd be up there, 100 RBIs like clockwork. I mean, just average, 30-100. That was his game. And I think what's so powerful about Fred McGriff finally getting in 
is he was always steady. Even in the latter part of his careers, he still was a kind of a 30, 95, 100 guy. And But the game had changed around him. The numbers had changed. They had been inflated, quite frankly. And when you look at the home run leaders, after Fred McGriff had those really key years up to 95, what happens? Well, 1996, where he's now dropped out of the top 10 in home runs, even though he's hitting 30 a year, who led the league? Well, you had McGuire in 96, McGuire 97, McGuire 98, McGuire 99, Sammy Sosa in 2000, Barry Bonds in 2001, Alex Rodriguez 2002. That's when Fred McGriff retired and A-Rod led also in the following year. Now you can say and have whatever beliefs you want to have about what that means. I have my certain views about what steroids and PEDs sort of meant. But the facts are Fred McGriff was bumped out of the top 10 at a time where PEDs seemed to be at the pinnacle of the sport or certainly when the most abuse was happening. So do we know all this? Do we have a smoking gun and evidence? We have some. But Fred McGriff was always seen as a guy who, who kind of approached it in this very consistent way. And his consistency started to become overshadowed by the short-term gains of many cultures that that spawned from PEDs. In our, and that's, what, that's just where the numbers went. So that's where Fred McGriff comes in and shows what it means to be steady and consistent. And and you look at some of the years, 1995 to 2002, he averaged 99 RBIs, 27 home runs, uh, 110 OPS plus. And that's the latter part of his career. But if you go off 162 game average, he was 29 home runs, 107 RBIs. Now he put up some of the same numbers in the first part of his career. And his OPS plus was 165. He was that much better. So if 100 is the baseline average, he was 10 percentage points, a little bit higher, went 30 percentage points in the latter part of his career. Some years he was 60 percentage points better. He was that good. But the numbers didn't really change. The game did. And Fred McGriff is a testament to not letting the game change you. Be consistent. Be steady. Do your job. Don't get caught up. Don't cut corners. As my dad would say, shortcuts lead to long cuts. I mean, he just was a guy that was pioneering the game, finishing high, doing all these things that people wanted to emulate. And that was Fred McGriff. I mean, he was someone you looked up to and admired from afar. He set the culture of the game. People followed him. He And he was steady and calm and convincing and really, you know, a silent assassin when it came to baseball, coming after you every single day. Uh, and I think for me, someone who played the game kind of in a quiet style, played hard, I, it was good to see Fred McGriff be successful. It's good to see Ryan Sandberg be successful, both Hall of Famers who went about their business quietly, deliberately, uh, with a certain confidence, but didn't have to showcase and, and wave all these flags and scream and yell all the time. They just did their jobs and they did it to the best, not only to their ability, but the best the game has seen, as the Hall of Fame can attest to. So, you know, Fred McGriff, it's it's great to see what he's accomplished and uh it was it was a great speech to listen to his life and his journey. I learned a, a lot that he got cut from his high school team, for example. Amazing. But that brings me to my former teammate, Scott Rowland. And everything I was just saying about Crime Dog, it's fitting that they got in at the same time. The steadiness, the consistency, uh, the small town, town sensibility that he just wore like a flag on his back. Jasper, Indiana. There's not a lot of players 
that I played with that I can say exactly their hometown. I know exactly where they grew up. I mean, and Scott was that guy. Everybody knew about Jasper, Indiana. And, you know, he he talked about it so well in his Hall of Fame speech. And I learned a whole lot about the things he did growing up in Jasper. Uh, and it wasn't long ago that I called him because a, a senator, a U.S. senator from his state of Indiana, grew up in Jasper as well. So I called him and I was uh, working on a project and, and we ended up talking for literally three days. <laughs> we talked for three days. And Scott was, you know, home where he belongs. He just loved to get back to his roots. Uh, you know, the fact that he played in St. Louis and Cincinnati and the Midwest was, you know, so fitting for him. Uh, and I think that when you think about Roland, you always think about these these types of sensibilities around his game and how hard he worked. And he very principled, very steady, and, you know, played with such a reckless abandon, but yet with such control and grace at the same time. It was amazing to see that combination of power and grit and intensity and just physicality and still have a beauty of watching him. Uh, it was something to be seen. And, and I think that uh, I realized at first I thought, well, I only played with Scott like three times, three years, but it was actually almost five years in 98, 99, 2000, 01, 02. And then he got traded to St. Louis. Uh, but the one fun thing to look at with Scott was watching how Jimmy Rollins came up and I called Jimmy Rollins two, rookie 2.0. They were so different. And Scott just wanted to like punch the clock, go in, get his, you know, hard hat, just do his thing, go home. You know, no glory, just grit. And Jimmy was like, where's the microphone? You know, he wanted to celebrate excellence and showcase it and be seen and heard. And and rookies weren't like that. And so it was, they clashed a little bit in the beginning, not so much Rollins talking to him or talking back at him, but Roland just saying, this is how we do it. You're seen but not heard. You're a rookie. You have to stay quiet until your time is bought. And that was how Scott was. And he and he would call it out uh, for better or for worse. He was going to call it out. And and Jimmy became Jimmy and did exactly his game, and it made him great. He may be a Hall of Famer too. Uh, but it was interesting to watch that that tension at times with, with Scott Rowland being the man he was from his roots and his style and the expectation of what he believed to be as he became a leader and a veteran in the game and, and how he needed to express that about the right way to approach the game. You hear that a lot, right way. Still kind of trying to figure out what that means sometimes, but I'll come back to that some other time. Uh, but, you know, he's a guy that just, um, you know, played with reckless abandon. And so the many years of just watching him become a Hall of Famer, you knew pretty early on if he could stay healthy, if he could do these things consistently, get in another environment, he might be in the hall. And sure enough, he was he was there. And so, um, so yeah, I'm very proud that I had the chance to play with Scott Rowland for all those years. Uh, this guy I keep in touch with, uh, despite that intensity, he always had a very great sense of humor, a very dry sense of humor. <laughs> had us laughing all the time about all the things he thought through and um, very humble and often self-deprecating, talking about how Vladimir Guerrero was so much better than him. And, you know, he just, he was hilarious. Um, so with Scott Rowland, I think of um, so many great things. But uh, most of all, teammate, you know, Hall of Fame is one thing for the numbers, but he was Hall of Fame in many other ways as a teammate, as a hard worker, as someone who honored his family. 
honored his roots where he came from. Um, you know, he just did all these, everything intangible you could think of at a Hall of Fame level um, with, with certain poise and a certain patience. And, and so it was great to play with him. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Building a portfolio with Fidelity Basket Portfolios is kind of like making a sandwich. It's as simple as picking your stocks and ETFs, sort of like your meats and other topics, and managing it as one big juicy investment. That's pretty good. Learn more at fidelity.com slash baskets. Investing involves risk, including risk of loss. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. Member NYSC SIPC. Well, we're very fortunate on this edition of Starkville to be joined by my friend, my former teammate, Mike Lieberthal, a.k.a. Lieby. And by the way, I feel like I coined his name to give him a little bit more authority as a catcher, a.k.a. Thal, T-H-A-A-L. So Thal just had like a, a very Viking connotation. I, I kind of love that. So I think it gave you a little more strength behind the plate. Uh, so welcome in, man. Good to see you. Yeah, good to see you, Doug. Yeah, man. So it's been too long. So, you know, look, this has been a pretty incredible ride. Uh, I'm not sure how many years we played together. It had to be four or five in Philly. And, um, you know, we were kind of part of a core, I'd say, in some respects, of Bobby Abreu, uh, you know, certainly when we had Jimmy Rollins come up. But there's one guy who anchored third base. That was Scott Rowland. And um, and so, you know, I want to talk about him in a little bit. But, I, you know, your your time in the game was uh, longstanding. You know, all-star appearance, 30 home runs. You had some big years in there, man. And, you know, you look at this Hall of Fame induction and you see Scott Rowland teammate and you see Fred McGriff and we're starting to look at all these players get in that are part of our time right this is our era where a lot of these guys are getting in and there's controversy around many of them but it's happening and uh so with these two inductees well I guess first I wanted to get your sense of just the hall of fame and like where was that in your radar as a, as a player coming up and being in love with the game you know where did you see the hall of fame well we had our in-season game it was almost uh it was like a exhibition game we played in the seattle mariner and we went to cooperstown so we were chosen it was early it was probably maybe in 97 maybe 99 when uh the phillies were chosen to play the mariners and it was my first time in cooperstown going through cooperstown going through the, the hall of fame and it was my first time actually meeting ken griffey jr and to this day, I still have a picture on the wall of him coming to the plate, kind of saying hello. I'm kind of looking up up at him, and it's pretty cool. Like, I mean, my kids are like, "Wow, you get you played against Ken Griffey Jr." I mean, it was an exhibition game, but I mean, he was always in the American League, so I never really played against him except in Cooperstown. So that was really the only time I've been to Cooperstown. And now, you know, all these kids are going, you know, these 12 year old kids, uh, you know, the little league kids are going every year. I mean, my kids didn't go, but 
I know I have an up and coming boy that's going to, he's 10 now, but he wants to go to Cooperstown. So, and all my friends have been, you know, with their kids. So it's pretty cool. And obviously I watch the, the speeches every year. I had to bring my 15 year old out when Scott Rowland was giving his speech and I'm like, I had to rewind it and say, Hey, come out here. This is pretty good. Watch how hard he worked to get to where he was. And so I made him watch it. And, um, you know, it's always pretty special just to hear the speeches. Derek Jeter's speech last year was amazing. I actually, I loved his speech last year. And both speeches with, with McGriff and Scotty this year were very well. So, it's you know, it's always a special piece. Yeah, man. Well, well let's talk about, you know, these players. I mean, Fred McGriff. I mean, I, I always associated him with, with someone that kind of became a, a trendsetter, right? You know, this finishing high, right? The the windmill and all the things he did. All these players were copying him. And I don't, and it's not necessarily what he set out to do, but it was just something that was so notable and so different about mechanics on how to finish. And uh, and he was just steady and steady and steady every year. But what's always it's always cool to talk to a catcher because you had a different mentality about how you saw these players. So what was it like, you know, trying to get McGriff out you know, try to strategize against him when we had these advanced scouting meetings. I mean, what was the, what was the crime dog like to try to actually neutralize? Yeah, I mean, maybe he had that windmill from reading that Charlie Lau book. He said he read like a hundred times. I don't know, man. I don't know what's in that book. I haven't read it. But um, I mean, he was a tall, you know, left-handed hitter that stood kind of away from the plate, so you knew you had to pitch him inside because he had so much extension. And, um, you know, when I faced him against the Braves, it was kind of towards later in his career. So he's already, he already had all the home runs and accolades. And it was kind of like me looking up like Ken Griffey Jr. Wow, this is Fred McGriff. This guy's a legend and, you know, he's a big home run hitter. So, I mean, as a catcher, we would probably just pitched him in, you know, as much as you can. Um I know he said like his philosophy on hitting totally changed when he was in the minor leagues. And all he did is just look fastballs instead of kind of guessing off speed. And that's kind of what, you know, made his approach and simplified his approach. Um, so he was a good fastball hitter. So, I mean, I can't really remember exactly how we worked him from at bat to a bat, but I know like he was always away from the plate and he had those long arms and he had a lot of power. So I'm sure we worked him inside a lot. Well, you know, it certainly matters. Like sometimes you have guys like Schilling on the mound who, you know, kind of, you know, hits, hit his spots. And then you get the guys like, uh-oh, he might make that mistake. And uh, do you recall any home runs you gave up? Or <laughs> Yeah, well, they showed on TV yesterday when Roland hit a home run the same game Fred McGriff did. And I was like, oh, there I am. I was catching. <laughs> and it was on an inside fastball, too. I was set up inside. So I don't know if that was – you know, see, I told you that's how we were working him inside, but he got us on inside oh, fastball. That, that was that was Padilla, right? Vicente Padilla. Yeah, it? I think so. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. That's all he did is throw fastballs. I know. Oh man, yeah. No, it's it's a uh, you know the full circle coming back and um, now you you know you had your stop in L.A. I mean, you didn't play with Fred McGriff at all, did you? At any right? Time? No, no, you never came across. Yeah, because it was like Cubs. I mean, he hit a lot but of But he games. had some great years with the Atlanta Braves and, you know, this, that championship year. And I, I think it was uh, 94 or he was there from like, I think, 94 to 97. Yeah, yeah, yeah. World Series. I mean, he, yeah, he was, yeah, he was amazing. Well, yeah. And so when you mentioned Scotty, I mean, 
this is always different when you talk about Hall of Famers because there's a period where you're like, wow, that's like another world. You know, these guys like Babe Ruth and so on. And then it starts to come to reality that once the, the guys get in that you were fans of as a kid and then you're in that generation, it really does change. And it changes a lot when guys are in. You know, I play with Ryan Sandberg or Jim Tomey, obviously we played with guys like that. You, you realize like it's it's really come home. But you, with Scotty, you played with him way before I did. I was traded over to the Phillies in 97, and you had minor league time. I mean, so can you recall some of your first interactions and first impressions of Scott Rowland when you first? Yeah, I really, I didn't play in the minor leagues with him. When he came up, uh, I was already up, and you just heard about this new kid, Scott Rowland, and um, incredible third baseman. And I just remember, like, going to spring training and, like, we were kind of next to each other sitting on the bus going to Port St. Lucie or somewhere in, in spring training. And I was just looking at his legs and his legs were like twice the size of mine. I'm like, <laughs> how is this guy like that big? And, and, and for at a, at third base, once you saw him play, you're like, how is he that quick and agile for that size? And everybody's like, Oh, did you hear? He was a great basketball player. He was really, I'm like, okay, well that makes sense. He's like, yeah, he could have gone to Indiana or, I'm like, wow, what an athlete to be that size and that quick. And then, you know, to actually watch him play was pretty amazing for him to be that, you know, that big and the plays he made. Uh, do you recall any, uh, you know, early moments that stood out just getting to know him? Because, you know, it took a minute to sort of crack the Scott Rowland shell a little bit. And then once you get to know him, I mean, how did he was so similar change? To, to Chase Otley? You know, he was very quiet. He was very determined. He was very hardworking. Um, and, you know, he was tough. I mean, the way he ran the bases, very similar to Chase. The way he carried himself, very similar to Chase. Um, and I just remember he always, he was always working. He always had back problems. So he always had these issues. And he had the, uh, Hap was like the trainer for the Phillies. Um, a special trainer back in the day. And he would always be doing like hours of back exercises before his games just to stay healthy. So you saw the hard work and dedication that he had at a young age and um, just pretty amazing. Just watching him play. I mean, obviously they would talk about the, the bump plays, the slow rollers coming in was spectacular to watch them and going left and right, but it was just day in and day out his glove work over there. And, and third base is a tough position. As you know, it's like, I felt like it was almost tougher than shortstop because just the balls and the different hard shots that would come at that position. Um, and he was just the best at it. So it was just, and to watch it from home play, it's kind of a different perspective, you know, cause you really see the ball come off the bat and you know, the quickness in front of you. Yeah, man. I mean, he was, well, is there any particular play moment that stood out with uh, Scott Maybe we can start with defense. It could be offense, but uh, anything stand out? I know we had a lot of great games, a lot of years together. Um, all I know is that I would always tell Rowan that he can have all pop-ups, especially if we were in San Francisco. <laughs> the candlestick, you know, the wind was blowing. I remember one time I think he, like, took out my legs trying to catch a <laughs> pop-up, and he's like, I told you I would get everything leaves. You don't have to worry about pop-ups. Like, and he was so amazing at pop-ups, like the balls over his head going towards left field line towards the outfield. I mean, he just made it look so easy. So I was like, Scotty, I don't want to embarrass myself by any of these pop-ups. You can have them all. 
Yeah, you thought well, you yeah, you didn't have the right glove for that for sure. Uh, well, I remember uh, a couple of stories that um, I don't know. I guess yeah, you were with it. I was gone in two thousand three, but we played the Rays in Tampa, and um, he just had a phenomenal game. I think he hit two home runs. You know, did what he always does on defense. Throws the perfect four seam heavy ball, chest high. If you have a catch for Scott Rowland, it was chest high, four seamer right there every time. And um, and Wayne Gomes was was like moved to tears to tell him after the game, he just said, Scotty, I would pay to watch you play. I get a free <laughs> every day, but I would pay. And it was like right. Scott was visibly moved by. Um, and so there was a lot of games like that where you just kind of marveled at, you know, the, the running with hair on fire kind of thing, but also just the intensity and the focus uh, was second to none. I mean, do you have any rec- you know, recollections of, of, of any particular game? Um, it's hard to say a game, but, you know, we always talk about his defense and we don't really talk about his hitting too much. I felt like him as, you know, a hitter, he could have hit, I think, way more home runs. He was always a line drive focused on more average doubles, um, and it just seemed like, uh, I think he could have hit 40 home runs, you know, or more. It, it just seemed like he was more dedicated to being a complete player, uh, you know, a guy that would hit for average, hit for doubles, run the bases, uh, early in his career, he actually, he would steal 20 bases a year. I mean, that was when he was with the Phillies. So it was pretty amazing for him, you know, to watch on the offensive side, not only just, you know, defense. Yeah. Well, one thing I think of too with Scott is like he, I mean, he was very organized, right? He had his routines and rituals as many of us did. And um, there was one day we were in LA, we had a bad road trip and we had early batting practice on the field. And Scott, Bobby and I kind of came later. We had a routine. I, I like the soft toss. Bobby likes soft toss. Scotty, as you know, hit off the tee a million times. And um, Boa calls us into the office. And, you know, we're like, okay, you know, what's going on? And we're at the time, we're hitting like 220. I mean, we, nobody was on fire. But, you know, we were just like confident that we'd stick to our, our routine, our process, and get out of it. And Philly, it's tough sometimes because, you know, the results are, are critical. So um, he calls us in the office and he starts challenging us about why we weren't at early hitting because we're all hitting 220, <laughs> Travis Lee or whatever. And, you know, we're we're skipping early batting practice. And now you can imagine how that went over with Scott, right? Now, Scott, who has his routine, he hits off the tee. And the line that just shut the whole conversation down as we listened to this, because he was respectful. He's like, I'm going to listen to him, hear him out. He just said, are you questioning my professionalism? Is that what you're doing right now? And that conversation like ended. <laughs> it like ended. It was like, right. he changed the subject. He was like, and and that was it. And I was like, wow, that was serious. Cause it's just like one thing you cannot do with Scott Rowland is like, question right. is like dedication to anything. Right. He was very committed and, uh, and his Jasper, Indiana roots, you know, he was like, no, 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 small town. I'm, this is how we get after it. So, um, so I remember that pretty well. And uh, I was happy to be in the roof. If it was me alone, I would have been in trouble. But Scott just like threw the cover and we all just like slinked out of the office. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
but yeah, but Scotty, I, I mean, the um, well, I always tell the story about the quilt when we had Philly's the, the wives' charity. Everybody got a square on that quilt, and you know, you weren't. I don't think you were married at the time. Nope. So we all had our squares, and I didn't. I had nobody, no significant other, right? So I didn't even care about signing this. I was like, whatever. So I was at last to sign it. And by then, Roland had been traded to the Cardinals. So this had to be 02 or somewhere. So I, they, Gene Dias, the PR guy, uh, now, well, he was then community relations. He says, hey, man, you got to sign this. And they said, well, who did my square? He's like, well, Travis Lee's wife or somebody else did it. Okay, that's cool. So I go in and there's a square, number six. It's like red and white. That's cool. I'm going to sign it. And I look in the middle of the quilt and there's a black square. It was, jet, it was like black, dark purple, dark green. I mean, it was like death and despair. And I look a little closer, and it was a drawing of Scott Rowland in full uni, standing at a dock over like a, a river that was raging. And there was ravens in the sky. It was like lightning. It was like, it was the most <laughs> ominous picture. It looked like the, what is it, the Vincent Van Gogh picture with the ghosts and the... the right, right. <laughs> so... I then I then I dawned on me that this was Scott Rowland trolling us from St. Louis. Like it just hit me like this this is a beautiful red white quilt, except for this black square. Now the Phillies have to auction it off. And Scott's right. gotta be laughing. So I called oh him God. from the locker room. I was like, and literally the second he picked up the phone, he was laughing hysterically. He knew exactly. <laughs> uh, oh my gosh, he was a piece of work. Um but um but yeah, I always enjoyed you know, like you said, the the effort, the intensity. Um, I guess there was was there a moment you kind of said, "Hey, this guy is a Hall of Famer." When did that kind of? I mean, from the beginning, possible? just from I mean, just watching him a year, a full year in Philly, third base. They make comparisons to Mike Schmidt, even though I've never seen Mike Schmidt play. I was always like, "Wow, Mike Schmidt was that good?" You know, they said, "Oh, well, maybe Mike Schmidt's arm wasn't quite as good, but." They were kind of like the same defensively. And then I was like, you know, just looking at Schmidt, you know, like, the, the, you know, the Hall of Fame, you know, going alumni weekends. I'm like, damn, Schmitty, I didn't know you were that good at third base because that's how good Scott was. It's just like how they talk about Nolan Arenado. I've never played with Arenado. I only see the plays he makes on TV, but I heard it's very similar. It's um, it's a very tough position. And to be that elite, elite at that position, there's not that many players that are talked about like Scott Rowland or Aaron Otto or, or Adrian Beltre, or, you know what I mean? There's just, it's, um, I just knew from the, you know, from the beginning, just watching him play every day. And there's so many, you know, you play a lot of games just for one year, 162 games, and he's playing in almost all of them. So you really see him play a lot and everybody knew from the beginning, wow, this guy is going to be a hall of famer. If he stays healthy, he plays, you know, 15, 20 years. He's definitely going to be a Hall of Famer. Um, you know, you knew he was going to hit enough, and it was just, just just to watch him every day in the field was just, you know, it was something you don't see every day. Yeah, I mean, do you recall, like, the there was a lot of tension around Scott Rowland in Philly, you know, they because of the fact that, you know, remember Mike Schmidt had a lot of trouble kind of getting endeared, you know, you know endearing with the fans. And it took a while, and he wore the rainbow wig at one point to kind of loosen things up. But Scott was also the effort to sign him was really tough. And and I think I don't know. I think you were there. You must have been there in Cleveland where we had kind of the rails things, the wheels fell off. 
where there's a lot of anonymous quotes in the newspaper uh, about Scott uh, because they were, you know, it seemed like he wasn't going to sign with the Phillies an extension. He was just buying his time to get out of there. So eventually, you know, things start to become tense because you're not signing and you're just about to leave. And you saw you started to see that he was about to get traded at some point. So we saw that coming. And, uh, you know, I remember that paper had all these anonymous quotes and he was really upset. He like called a meeting and, you know, said, whoever put your name on these anonymous quotes. I don't know if you recall that in Cleveland. Do you remember that? Mm-hmm. A little bit. Yeah. So, um, you know, but it was an interesting moment of just seeing like Scott and his principles, right? Like standing up about like, put your name behind your quotes, things like that. It was, mm-hmm. it was really important to him. Um, but I guess, did you ever think about, you know, Hey, what it would have been like if he stayed in Philly and, you know, we played longer together. Um, I don't know if you played, when was your last year in Philly? In 03. Or actually, no, my last year in Philly was 06. Yeah. But um, what was I was thinking? When when was Scott's last year? And it was uh, ninety oh oh two. Okay, yeah, that's what I was thinking. So I, I it was just tough because Scott was the best player on the Phillies, and we didn't win for so many years. So he took the brunt of you know our losses, and you know if things weren't going well, and he wasn't one to come out and you know quote in the newspaper, what's wrong with the team, what we needed, or he was very, you know, he was very professional, but he was very quiet too. Um, so I, I just, he took the brunt of our losses, you know, as, as a team, he was our star player. And there were times where he wasn't hitting, like he, he went through his struggles hitting too. Um, it's not like he was hitting 300 every year and this, um, you know, incredible offensive player that, you know, there's nothing the fans could say. So he was kind of like that Mike Schmidt when Mike Schmidt at the end of his career was really struggling with the bat and he took the brunt of the team's losses. So it was very unfair at that time for Scott. And at the time, you know, I think, I don't know, he, he just wanted to, you know, backing of the club, backing of the general manager, managers just to be, kind of like had his back and I don't think he felt that. So um, there was a lot of negative feelings, I think at the time. So I think that's why he felt like it, it wasn't the right place for him. Well, and I don't know if you were at this meeting, but in spring training, the year he was, they were kind of trying to sign up to an extension and a lot of the numbers started leaking out, whether real or imagined or whatever. And uh, he in spring training, uh, you, you know, the new facility, we had that weight room with the garage and you could go out the back and kind of stand in the grass. You know, you had a little grassy area. And Scott called the meeting. I don't know if you were there, but KJ was a lot of our guys who played with him a long time. Mm-hmm. And he, um, you know, he kind of just said, hey, you know, almost like I love you guys as brothers. You know, my situation with Philly has nothing to do with my desire to play with you guys and to root and wish us success. You know, he kind of cleared the air. You know, Scott liked to talk more one-on-one, but this was one of those moments he really wanted to address the group. And right. I definitely appreciated that because, you know, you don't know, like, guys like, I don't want to play in Philly. Or, you know, sometimes people simplified it. Mm-hmm. You can, of course, take that personally. Like, hey, these guys can't win. I don't want to be with these guys. And you have to say that in, like, you know, April, yeah. I mean, which is a hard thing to do and in, in addressing it uh, because his contract wasn't getting extended. He was, he was not signing or whatever was happening. So I do, you know, 
don't know if you were in that meeting, but Kevin Jordan, I remember, was there and, you know, disguised as talking about, you know, what he was doing, what was like the best choices for his his future versus, you know, right. maybe what would have made like the Phillies better, let's say. Right. Yeah. Well, it seemed like St. Louis was a great spot for him to win, you know, a couple championships. Um, yeah. He really, yeah. He loved you, St. Louis. He loved the city and just how he was taken care of. Now, did you play against him um, somewhere, you know, after he was in St. Louis? Do you recall playing against Scott? Yes. Yes, at least a few games, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Like? It was definitely different to see him in that uniform. But yeah. But they had a great team for well, years, I mean. He, he fell into just a great environment and a winning, uh, a great team and a winning uh, atmosphere, especially with Pujols over there too. Yeah, man. Well, do you, do you have any um, favorite Scott Rowland stories? Like as people say, oh, Hall of Fame, you played with him. Is there anything that stands out of like, you know, Scott, you know, I, I mean, I have a lot of stories of him talking about Vladimir Guerrero and saying how he's like, man, that guy is so much better than I am. It's ridiculous. <laughs> Oh, this guy was hilarious when he, he he definitely had a humor about him. But right. anything that st- stand out about talking to Scott or oh God, I can't think of anything right now. Um, but yeah, he he was never like self appreciating. You know, it was never about him. You know, he just showed up the same guy every day, did his job, and uh, you know, it was just never about himself. It was always just you know about. Him. The people that he was around yeah well his speech definitely em- embodied that i mean it was yeah it was cool to see i thought that was like exactly scott Rowland. you know how does he think of it you know very principled uh very clear about things uh family you know i, well, I remember he when he got married i don't know if, i don't think any of us were invited <laughs> it was like all right i remember kevin sepsick was so hurt he was like oh man i thought i was like his good friend <laughs> It was like, it's like, it's just a Jasper, Indiana thing. Everybody from Jasper is invited. That's it. Right. It's like, right. It's like, the, it's like the town and that's it. Don't even, don't take it personally. <laughs> so, yeah. uh, but Scott was classic, man. He was classic. Uh, well, yeah, Libby. Well, definitely. Um, it, it was, it was a joy to play with him I, and you as my teammate and friend. Uh, those are some good years. We weren't very good in the records, but um right. Yeah, I, had, I had such a good time with at least the people. We had a lot of good people on the, those teams. And, uh, you know, considering, you know, wasn't our best years, we uh, we were able to at least uh, enjoy going to work with the people every day. And you know, Scott was certainly one of those dudes. He was. Can't forget Rico Bronia at first base. We had one of the Absolutely, best first bases in the league, too. Helping yeah. Scotty out. Yeah, that's true. I, I need to talk to Rico. All the picks he made over there, he was he was a magician. He was really good. Yeah, some good years, man. Well, cool. Well, Mike. Yeah, well, I love seeing you on TV, Dougie. Love hearing your yeah. voice. Yeah, thanks, man. Keeping it going. Yeah, we got to catch up again soon. We got to get you to alumni weekend. We got to get I you know, to. Philly. I, I'm I'm really bad with the alumni events. I need to get better. I guess partly because I'm in Philly a lot for games, and I do kind of see people. So I, yeah. I don't think, but I want to see my teammates. It's been too long. Uh, more of them, at least, and not just one on one. But it'd be cool to 
recreate it. You know, we should have all made a trip to Cooperstown or something. I know we were working and doing crazy stuff, but right, we'll, we got to figure it out. All right, Dougie. Great talking yeah. to you, man. All right. Mike Lieberthal, former teammate of mine, catcher extraordinaire, ended up with the Dodgers, California dude, and, <laughs> uh, you know, bearded up in gray. That's just like me. So we're. I know. What are you going to do? We're not getting any younger. <laughs> no, we're not. <laughs> All right, partner. You take care. Are you struggling to close deals? B2B selling is tougher than ever, and that's why I want to tell you about LinkedIn Sales Navigator. One more great product from LinkedIn. You're there to network, you're there to look for jobs, you're there to post jobs, and how about LinkedIn Sales Navigator? It's a sales intelligence platform that helps professionals effectively prospect and engage high-value customers, drive higher revenue, and increase sales performance. Sales Navigator helps you target the right buyers, surface key signals such as job changes or which accounts you should prioritize and shows you hidden allies so you can find those buyers that are most likely to convert. Fueled by LinkedIn's 1 billion member platform, Sales Navigator gives you the most up-to-date first-party data enabling you to unlock conversations with the people that matter. Right now, you can try LinkedIn Sales Navigator and get a 60-day free trial at linkedin.com slash baseball show. That is linkedin.com slash baseball show for a 60-day free trial. Let LinkedIn Sales Navigator help you sell like a superstar today. Just go to linkedin.com slash baseball show and get started. Typically, we have our strange but true section uh, as we go into the close. And so I'm going to keep it strange. I'm going to keep it true. But, you know, maybe we don't need the music because Jason Stark isn't here. But I have to honor this man for his strangeness and his trueness. And we have to just do something in his honor. And it so happens, I'm calling the game in Boston, Mets, Red Sox, and Mark Canna is in left field for the Mets. Now, he's not known for his howitzer of an arm. He's not known for you know, phenomenal defense. He's steady. He's one of the steadiest, consistent, really good players in the game. But throwing people out is not his thing. However, he's at Fenway, and they have a green monster. And as beautiful and majestic as it is, it's actually a dream for a left fielder because every ball hit off that wall may be a single, and you could do something about that. So amazingly enough, I'm looking at this from, I got a tweet from Mark Simon on the back end of what I'm about to tell you. But Mark Simon tells me, it took Mark Canna until his 3,179th inning in left field to record an assist that didn't involve another player. So let's just back that up. He recorded an assist that didn't involve another player, meaning his throw went straight to the bag to get the runner, no cutoff man involved. And it took him 3,179 innings to finally record an assist without a cutoff man. So he did that in the early part of the game against the Red Sox by throwing the ball home as he backed up third, which was a great play, and threw the runner out at home. Then, a couple of innings later, he throws out Rafael Devers, third, who overran the bag. So now that's two assists without using another defender. No player, no infielder, nobody. And then what does he do? He has the nerve to do it a third time in five innings in the same game to throw out a runner going to second, Tristan Cassis. So let's back up. Mark Canna throws out three runners 
with no cutoff man after not doing it for over 3,000 innings. I mean, this is, what is that? That's strange. That's true. And maybe we can add a comma. That's bananas. But Mark Canna. So, of course, we tweeted this out, Jason Stark. And I wanted to honor Jason by saying, I got my own strange but true today. And you don't have to be here to hear it, but you can listen to it on the podcast coming up. All right, and that's going to do it for this edition of Starkville Minus uh, without Jason Stark. So thanks for listening and watching Starkville on the Athletic Baseball Show, as hopefully you always do. We didn't do trivia today because I want to save that for, you know, coming back with Jason, two heads are better than one. But if you want to get involved next week, you can email us at starkville at theathletic.com. Or, of course, hit us on Twitter, the usual suspects, at Doug Glanville, D-O-U-G-G-L-A-N-V-I-L-L-E, and Jason Stark, at J-A-Y-S-O-N-S-T. I don't know why he has no arc at the end of that, but whatever, at Jason Stark. So hit us, email us, whatever it takes. Now, make sure you use the hashtag, in this case, hashtag StarkvilleQS, questions. So we send us these questions Hit us on Facebook, Threads, wherever. I don't, it doesn't matter. Pinterest, I don't care. You can find me, email me, doesn't matter. Uh, to check out all the great writing happening at The Athletic, and there's a lot of it, you got to visit theathletic.com slash baseball show. And to join us, you can join us for just $1.99 per month for 12 months. That's that's amazing. That's like buying a bottled water or Starbucks, whatever, every, every day. It's great. Um, but given that deal, we have to still thank you who gave us this show and completed that. And I have to thank my longtime teammate and friend, Mike Lieberthal. Uh, he, he joined us. It was great to hear a catcher's perspective on Hall of Famers. One, he tried to get out all the time in Fred Griffin, later Scott Rowland, and the other Scott Rowland, a teammate for many years, all the way up as he first got up to the big league. So really cool to hear stories from Mike Lieberthal. So I want to thank you again for joining us. I want to thank the mayor for keeping it together without Jason Stark and his antics. Tim McMaster, always in the mayoral chair, for, 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 and also producing the show. Incredible job. Thank you. And we'll see you next time on Starkville.